welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian, and joining me in the studio is Dr. Nerses Kopalian. He is the author of EVN Security Report. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Uh, November's security briefing uh, you uh, titled Armenia's New Statecraft, Co-Alignment Amid Geopolitical Pluralism. As our listeners know, in September, uh, after the September 19 attack, uh, the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh, the population of Nagorno-Karabakh was completely forcibly displaced um, and over 100,000 Armenians uh, are currently in Armenia uh, from Artsakh. And we are seeing a realignment of interests and relations in the region. Armenia has proceeded to deepen its relations with the United States and Europe, while we have seen what you call an unexpected deterioration in U.S.-Azerbaijani relations. You write that these regional dynamics may trigger expansive shifts in the power configurations. Um, can you please elaborate on this? And then maybe we can then move in as to why Baku and Washington are now at odds with each other. Of course. Um, so we saw that there's been few trends. We've covered this a lot. We saw how after the uh, 2022 September German invasion, it led to a basically a shift in Armenia's policy, which introduced the initial stages of geopolitical pluralism, which basically suggests that interests in the region are no longer dominated by a singular power, but there's a, there is a pluralism of interests between various uh, uh, regional powers and small states. So this is sort of the pluralism that we're talking about. What happened uh, after the September 19 attack is that it basically brought about a more active engagement of international actors with the sort of both the severe criticism of Azerbaijan for its behavior. But more than that, what happened is that it ruptured the relationship that Azerbaijan had with certain Western capitals. And it wasn't because, to be honest, of the ethnic cleansing, but rather due to Azerbaijan's lack of credibility. As far as the West was concerned, they Let's knew... Just back up for a second. Yeah. Lack of credibility because the West believed that Aliyev wouldn't attack Nagorno-Karabakh or in general? West's posturing this entire time was that, yes, we know Aliyev is a dictator, but he's a trustworthy dictator because this entire time he has never lied to us. Mm. So he had built up a certain level of political capital in various Western thing, uh, uh, centers of power where they knew what he was, but they said he's a trustworthy or reliable ally because while he may be, uh, uh, you know, a t terrible sort of, you know, a tyrant or whatever we want to call it, but he doesn't lie to us. He works with us. Uh, diplomatically, he's reliable. Uh, and September 19 altered that because he ruptured that trust that he had built with Western countries, especially the United States. So in that context, the loss of credibility with the United States, with the West, led to a further restructuring of regional configurations. This also ties into the fact that the U.S. felt humiliated by Azerbaijan's behavior. Right, we've covered this in last month's discussion, where the United States uh, adamantly came out and said they are not going to tolerate ethnic cleansing and blah blah blah. This is precisely what Aliyev did in defiance of the U.S. posture. Now, the U.S. posture was reliant on the fact that Aliyev had promised to the Americans he would not do that. So it was that loss of credibility in Aliyev breaking his word that shifted the dynamics. And so the shift in U.S. policy, where they went from tolerating and even acquiescing some of Azerbaijan's behavior to one of actually clashing with one another, is a byproduct of that. And that all clearly led to the enhancement of geopolitical pluralism because 
because we saw Azerbaijan tilt more towards Russia, while Armenia saw a lot more support from Europe and the United States. Mm-hmm. So right now, what we ha- we have two uh, important groupings, if you will. We have the Russo-Turkish-Azerbaijani tandem, right? Uh, and then we have Armenia-Europe-US tandem or coalition. coalition it's more of a coalition is it more of a coalition yes. why is it a coalition well because a tandem entails uh, a great deal of synchronized behavior and uh, an alignment of interests where they're operational and functionally aligned with each other so to a large extent when it comes to the south caucuses all three work together to keep the international community out to keep conflict localized and to maintain the authoritarian orbit so they work in tandem armenia does not work in tandem with the u.s or the europeans rather they formed a coalition of interests where they try to preserve Armenia's sovereignty, regional stability, uh, and of course, uh, uh, maintain a peace or secure peace treaty. So the structuration of the relationships are very different. This, therefore, one is called a tandem, the other a, co- a coalition. This Russo-Turkish-Azerbaijani tandem, as you just mentioned, has been doing everything in its power to neutralize Western support to the Republic of Armenia. And you also say that it consolidated, and we've talked about this again in the past, the proxyization of Azerbaijan as a sort of regional mini hegemon, if you will. And this led to further deteriorations in the relations with the West. And then we also saw Antony Blinken, a U.S. Secretary of State, and also James O'Brien coming out very strong uh, against Azerbaijan. Can we just talk about that? Uh, aside from the humiliation, I mean, it's not the first time that the U.S. has been humiliated, I would assume, by a trusted dictator. Yes, but there's levels to humili- humiliation. Azerbaijan is fl- clearly far too small of a country to humiliate the United States. Also, U.S. strategic interests in the region were fundamentally designed to counterbalance and further diminish Russian power. So Azerbaijan's humiliation of the United States was not simply qualified as an act in of itself, mm-hmm. but also an act that basically hurt American interests vis-a-vis Russia within the region. So contextually, if you if the United States, for example, is building political geopolitical capital in the region and prestige and things of that sort, Aliyev's harming of that prestige in the region uh, uh, affects America negatively. And in that context, it offers Russia another discourse where Russia comes out and says, you see, we're the only ones that can solve this conflict. Outside actors are only making things worse. So in, in, in that contextual interpretation of things, U.S. was very uh, upset because the move by Azerbaijan, the, the cleansing of Artsakh, the breaking of its war to, to the United States, uh, fundamentally served, yes, uh, Baku's interests, but also uh, Russia's interests. So this is why the United States uh, came out as very, very upset. And, you know, uh, James O'Brien, the Undersecretary of State, did not mix any words, mm-hmm. right? He was very, very straightforward on this. More so, we learned from his testimony that the United States also canceled high-level meetings with them, that the United States basically made clear that unless you correct your demeanor, and we can talk about what that correction entails, right? The United States is not going to restructure its relationship with Azerbaijan. It's not going to be quote-unquote business as usual. Similarly, we saw the Europeans also coming out as being extremely critical of Azerbaijan as well. But Europe is soft power, so its capacity for punitive action is limited. United States, its capacity for punitive action is a lot more robust. And so when the United States basically uh, messaged to the world that Azerbaijan is being indirectly punished by us, 
now else Armenians may not consider that to be a sufficient form of punishment, but nonetheless, in 30 years of relationship, this is a serious breakdown in their well-established relations. These are important indicators that there's a lot more going on beyond the scenes than uh, meets the eye. And all of those factors are allowing us to understand why the United States uh, acted the way it did, that it was really, really upset because its political prestige, its geographical capital, political capital, was harmed by uh, Aliyev's decision. Yeah, and, and Baku, I mean, from its behavior and Aliyev from his behavior, it was quite clear that they were genuinely sort of taken aback or shocked by Washington's posture. I mean, like you said, they didn't mince any words. And uh, then, you know, in your security briefing, you say then uh, Baku began engaging in diplomatic brinkmanship. Can you explain? Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, in the past, we, we had a, a security briefing on the madman strategy or the madman theory. And all the tends to from time to time fall back on that when he deals with Western actors. And what he does, he basically engages in sort of what would qualify as sort of these egregious ex- extreme decisions or uh, actions. And then he uses that to convince the Western actors that, you know, I could tone down my approach if you come and meet me in the middle, right? Sort of that, you know, uh, modality brinksmanship where I'm going to basically raise the ante and you're obviously not going to meet me there. So therefore, let's meet in the middle. It's sort of, you know, a a very common behavior uh, utilized by bullies, right? Or, um, you know, in political sense, these sort of, you know, authoritarian uh, regimes. It's uh, Azerbaijan's response in that context was to basically go after USAID, Okay, Hikmet Haji, one of the more sort of a, a highest ranking officials in Aliyev's regime, went personally after Samantha Power. Uh, their parliament passed a resolution against the United States. Uh, they suspended several programs with the European Union. Uh, you know, uh, Baku's uh, media outlet started qualifying anybody who received training or education with the United States as U.S. Mm-hmm. spies. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very clear that there was a rupture and Aliyev was basically raising the anti in his anti-American demeanor. And the objective of that was to basically not only show displeasure towards the United States, but also to kind of signal the fact that, you know, I'm a, I'm a mini hegemon, you can't bully me. Of course, that's an artificial posturing, but at the same time, this is expected behavior from someone like Aliyev, who's been so accustomed to the West tolerating his egregious behavior. And so he was really caught off guard when, having been accustomed to the level of tolerance that he was used to, he got called out on it. And so his behavior has been relatively tantrum-driven. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so that's basically the security environment that we find ourselves two months, almost two months after the ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh. So now you introduced this concept, well, you didn't introduce, you write about this co-alignment and geographic bandwagoning. Um, so you write that it gives alternative prospects to develop its security architecture, this realignment of power, and this realignment of power interest in Armenia's posturing in this complex environment can be qualified through two concepts and talk about diversification and geographic bandwagoning. So let's, I mean, diversification seems pretty straightforward. Diversifying security partners, yeah. 
creating a wide range of uh, alternative sources to address uh, development. So diversification we've, we've covered, but the diversification is more nuanced. And the, the uh, this month's security uh, briefing explains how a small state like Armenia, through its Western pivot, implements the diversification process. So diversification is sort of as a blanket statement, but there are nuances in how a state goes about doing it. But before we get to that, uh, geographical bandwagoning, as you know, I didn't create obviously these concepts. This right, is borrowed right. from the broader scholar. Scholarship, uh, specifically from the lens of what we call neoclassical realism. It's a paradigm in international relations. And this basically explains the, the behavior of small states within a region that is generally dominated by competing hegemons. So in Armenia's case, what you have is 30 years of a dependency structure on Russia that failed. And so Armenia must diversify. How is it going to do that? It observes the geopolitical pluralism in a region and says, I'm going to geographically bandwagon, meaning I'm going to utilize the resources of a given hegemon and bandwagon upon them to ascertain dividends. In this case, security dividends. So the Western pivot is an act of geographic bandwagoning where Armenia is tilting towards uh, the United States, the West, in order to get tangible assistance, as we call it, certain dividends. So this shift isn't ideational, it's directional and strategic. And so bandwagoning is designed in that context. And so this, of course, allows for expansive diversification. And so the, the whole language that, I ha that we have in the uh, security briefing about co-alignment and, and diversification are actually intertwined. So you can't, for example, form out of the blue 10 or 12 alliances with various countries and start basically expecting tangible assistance, right? Or expecting a dividends. So what you do is you selectively align with given countries based on specific issue areas. This is known as co-alignment, right? So for example, let's say Armenia has developed a level of co-alignment with France in security. And it's developed a level of co-alignment with the United States on military information knowledge, but no hard power. It's developed co-alignment with the European Union on education, information, economy, so on and so forth, right? Co-alignment with, for example, the Emirates or, 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 or in Qatar, hypothetically, or, or Iran on security diversification, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're talking about here isn't sort of that black or white either or uh, uh, partnerships or, or alliances where everything is reliant on a given partner. Co-alignment allows the strengthening and deepening of bilateral relationships, which basically enhances the capacity for diversification. So what's the difference between that and multi-vectorism, which Armenia's foreign policy was all about at one point? Multi-vectorism was actually borrowed from the foreign policies of Central Asian countries that was that was initially coined by uh, Kazakhstan. And what multi-vectorism uh, aspires to do is it, uh, it basically seeks to utilize competing powers by a state, superpowers, to uh, tap into the given resources of those given powers and also force those powers to compete over your resources. So multi-vectorism was designed for Central uh, for Central Asia, specifically for countries that had natural resources. Therefore, they could have quote-unquote providers or superpowers or given hegemons competing over their resources. 
Armenia has no resources over which given powers will compete over. Therefore, the application or the utilization of a multi-vector foreign policy is incoherent for Armenia. And we saw why it fundamentally failed. So in, in that context, multi-vectorism, for example, would work and has worked for Azerbaijan because they have a natural resource. Azerbaijan, for all means and purposes, is a very Central Asian country in that context. It's authoritarian, it's Turkish, and basically it's, it's a rentier state, oil-reliant. Armenia does not have the characteristics or the attributes to uh, implement and develop a multi-vector policy. So, you know, the, the tradition of basically being lazy and borrowing concepts, right, that we had in the past is the byproduct of this. So, um, so diversification or co-alignment is very different than multi-vectorism -vector because uh, Armenia can diversify, can uh, co-align with non-hegemons, right? And this co-alignment, this uh, um, diversification process need not rely on competition of actors for your resources because you really don't have these resources. So this is more about Armenia engaging in a uh, in a multitude of relationships to ascertain tangible assistance and dividends as opposed to multi-vectorism where you have something others want and you tell others, you know what, compete over what I want and let me see what the dividends are from that. Okay, I got that. But Armenia right now is surrounded, let's say, by many hegemons. Yeah, we have... Azerbaijan, we have Turkey. Azerbaijan is not really a mini hegemon. They well, view themselves okay. as that. But, but, but they, but they, Middle powers like Turkey and Iran, uh, definitely. Russia to the north. What you're saying is that Armenia's policy or or, or, or vision of co-alignment should be sort of bandwagoning and, and finding partners with which it can, it has interests and those interests can vary. But all of those interests, all of those powers are outside of the region. How does that work? Not all the powers are outside of the region. So, for example, uh, Armenia can develop a coal-line policy with Russia once the stage of decoupling uh, uh, is addressed. Uh, Armenia, for example, is not leaving the Eurasian Economic Union. So when we use the term, for example, issue splitting in, in, the, uh, in the report, that's basically one example where you segmentize areas. So for example, Armenia could maintain its agricultural economic relations or export markets with Russia while developing its, its service sector or its IT sector, technology sector with other markets, right? It's not uh, basically an either or market. Model. Rather, we call this a quote-unquote and-and-and model. So you basically, it's not black and white, right? And so in that context, you could co-align with Iran, okay? If there's a peace treaty, for example, and somehow relations are eventually normalized with Turkey or Azerbaijan, for example, right, there can potentially, in theory, be a co-alignment and issue splitting on energy, for example, things of that sort. So... Um, the utilization of co-alignment uh, co does not necessarily entail that they have to be only regional actors. Regional actors are one component of it. Uh, for Georgia, for example, right? Armenia is now co-aligning with Georgia for specific transit and logistical reasons. So it's not accidental when the prime minister recognized Georgia's territorial integrity this month, right? The whole point was to message Georgia that I can't antagonize you because then I can't engage in co-alignment or issue splitting with you, right? 
So why don't we work together? Uh, so within the regional, there's, there's, there's those configurations, but outside of the region, right, when you are engaging with Europe or when you are engaging with the United States or India or whatever, they don't have to be physically in the region. They still have interest in the region. And so in that context, the geographical component, the pluralism that you see geographically in the region is allowing for this. Um, prior to, for example, the 2020 Russian invasion of Ukraine, you did not have geographical pluralism. It's fundamentally Russia-dominated, right? So geographical pluralism allows for these policies. Central Asia, for example, has some level of geographical uh, uh, pluralism because you have Russian interests, you have Chinese interests, you have American interests, and you have Western interests, right? So these comparative assessments allow us to understand that diversification is an important part of regional dynamics. And so as Armenia co-aligns and engages in issue splitting, that is how we understand the way that it's diversifying. I want to talk about Russia, as I always want to talk about Russia, it seems, in our security briefings, because it's some, it's it's a power that we cannot um, discount, uh, nor can we, nor is it very predictable, or perhaps it is in political science or international relations in, in, in you know, security expert world. But you, when you talk about issues or, or co-alignment with Russia, for example, we can have mutual interests in agriculture or whatever it is, but that's going on the assumption that Russia accepts that you have left or you have decoupled from it in terms of uh, security relations. Well, Russia fully understands that you are decoupling right now, and that is basically a foregone conclusion. Whether Ru Russia agrees to co-align with you or agrees to engage in issue splitting and segmentation with you, that's Russia's decision. So if nobody, if somebody doesn't want to be your partner, you can't force them to be your partner, right? right? That person could then turn around and So become... that's where you have to engage in specific set of working relationships. Uh, but the argument that if a given country is so strong that they're basically going to use force to oppress or abuse you, and therefore because of that, you shouldn't diversify or do anything else, that's the equivalent of basically saying closer or give up your sovereignty and become a colony. So that's not usually how it works. Uh, the same threat that Georgia faced, for example, after the two, 2008 war, Georgia was able to engage in some level of diversification, right, in security sphere, in its economy, so on and so forth. And therefore, it was able to address some of these issues. But then in the, in the process, it did find a working relationship with Russia. So nobody's arguing, and this was why I brought up the whole and-and posture as opposed to either-or. Nobody is arguing that Armenia should sever, sever relations with Russia or that it should end relations with Russia. Those are nonsensical arguments. What we're saying is Armenia should not be entirely dependent on Russia because dependency remains unhealthy. How do you escape dependency? You diversify. Now, one of the components of that diversification process of that co-alignment can entail an important Russian uh, involvement, economy, culture education, all these things, right? Even potentially you could reestablish some security relations, hypothetically speaking. But at this point, considering the fact that the entire security architecture collapsed, it makes no sense to talk about security co-alignment with Russia. Further, Russia doesn't want security co-alignment with Armenia. We have to understand that. Russia wants subservience. But in the co-alignment literature, in these kinds of relationships, it's not a master-slave relationship. It's a relationship where two actors work together and they have mutual interests. So imposing your interest on another state or forcing them to do whatever it is that you want isn't what we're talking about when we speak about diversification and co-alignment.
you said earlier, and you said this last month, and you've said it uh, not only uh, in this format, but in other interviews that you've given and in articles that you've written, that the pivot, the Western pivot is not ideational, but rather strategically directional and interest driven. Is there a point where that pivot can become ideational? Well, that's up to Armenian society, right? But for example... Uh, and what is the danger of that? Right. An ideational pivot would be more similar to what Georgia did, where basically Saakashvili told Russia, get out of here, we don't like you, our move is all about Europe and the West, our values are def defined by that, we despise Russian values, therefore we're pivoting West. That's an ideational one, okay? Armenia is not saying we hate Russianness. Armenia isn't saying we reject Russian values, Russian culture, nothing like that. Armenia is saying we're in a very dire security situation and Russia abandoned us. Because of that, because of our security necessity, we have to pivot and diversify to have access to weaponry, to have access to the international market. So Armenia's shift in the continuum is qualified as directional because our direction is west to have access to resources. It's not driven by ideological underpinnings. If it was driven by ideological underpinnings, Armenia would have done this in 2018, right? They would have basically said, our values are Western values. We reject Russianness, therefore we're pivoting. That's not what Armenia did. Armenia's pivot was a byproduct of necessity, not ideational underpinnings. And so this is very, very important to grasp. If Russia had fulfilled its treaty obligations, we would not be having this conversation. Right, right. We've said this over so, and over right, again. But, right. if, but if, if the pivot was ideational, whether Russia helped or didn't, Armenia would still pivot because it's an ideational pivot. And so this distinction is very, very important. Uh, pivoting and moving by virtue of necessity is very different than pivoting or moving because of your ideational values. You've also said, and again, we might be repeating ourselves, but, you know, we live in the cyclone. So after September 2022, when Azerbaijan uh, attacked Armenia proper and continues to remain on Armenian soil, that's when we saw um, the pivot taking shape. Because up until that point, Armenia was still saying to Russia, you're my security partner, Correct. you're my security guarantor, help me out here, send me the weapons I paid money for. And it became very clear after September 2022 that Russia had either did not want to or could no longer fulfill its obligations to Armenia. Now, if there were some in expert community, let's say, who were in favor of this pivot, not because it's ideational, but because it's interest-driven and, and it was in Armenia's interest. How do we explain the ethnic cleansing of Karabakh? So the that's a very good question, but then we're assuming that the ethnic cleansing of Karabakh is connected to Armenia's pivot. Armenia had not pivoted in 2016 when Azerbaijan attacked and Russia basically turned a blind eye. Armenia had not pivoted in 2020 when the 44-day war broke out, right? Armenia had not pivoted when uh, Azerbaijan attacked Sevlich, the Black Lake, or attacked basically uh, absorbed territories of different Armenia, or with the uh, 2020 Gevarkunik and Jeremy uh, invasions. So there's a lot of evidence that basically demonstrates that Azerbaijan's aggression and Russia's refusal to both arm Armenia, CSTL's refusal to support Armenia as a member, and Russia's refusal to deter or control Azerbaijan had nothing to do with the pivot because all of these things were happening and Armenia was left 
helpless. So in that context, Russia assuming, for example, protective status over uh, uh, Artsakh by virtue of the no November 9 trilateral ceasefire, and then consistently refusing, right, to meet its obligations, even prior to the pivot, demonstrate this point, right? When Paro happened, for example, mm -hmm. and they took all these villages, attacked and took villages and did this and did that, Azerbaijanis did, and Russians basically stood there and did nothing. There was no pivot back then, right? So the empirical evidence is quite consistent in demonstrating that Azerbaijan's behavior and Russia acquiescing or basic or indirectly supporting Azerbaijan, these things happened prior to any pivot discourse. So there is no causal relationship between Armenia's pivot and the security, the, the worsening of the security dilemma. It had already wor worsened and kept getting worse whether there was a pivot or not. So the fact that this, this suggestion that there's a relationship is unfounded, spurious, we cannot relate the two with one another. With respect to the uh, ethnic cleansing of Artsakh, again, if Russia did not allow it to happen, it would not have happened. The fact that Russia allowed it to happen it happened. Now, whatever the reasons are, that's besides the point. But to suggest that Russia, for example, hypothetically, allowed the ethnic cleansing of Artsakh to happen because Armenia had pivoted the West, conceptually that makes no sense because all that does is it encourages Armenia to speed up or enhance the pivot. That's self-negating and it contradicts Russian interests, if that is the logic that we're playing off of. So there is no causal relationship between the two. Furthermore, Armenia's pivot wasn't Russia-specific. Armenia needed someone or, or, or something, right, in very simplified terms, to basically deter and control and curtail Azerbaijan's behavior. And so when Russia was refusing to do that, Armenia's understanding was by pivoting west, before we can even diversify and have access to weaponry, at least we could use the diplomatization of our security and Western pressure to at least control Azerbaijan's behavior. So it's a combination of both Russia failing to provide us sufficient hard power capacities and the need to control Azerbaijan's behavior to some extent that explains the directional pivot. If Russia had addressed those issues, we would not be having this conversation. In the security, I promise this will be my last question, or maybe not. But for the moment, it's my last question. Uh, you said one of the reasons for Armenia's defeat, and you've said this often, and many people have, and, and for our failure and, and after the war, during the war and after the war, was because we put all of our eggs in one basket. And uh, we saw that that worked against us. And now we're pivoting to the West while we're trying to diversify, right? We have, we're buying arms from India. There's movement in the Gulf at the moment. But mostly, mostly, Armenia's pivoting toward... Washington and Brussels, and to other EU member countries. France has played an important role in all of this. How do we mitigate Armenia falling into the same trap once again for the next 30 years? That's a very, very good question. First, you fall into that trap because of your sort of, you know, uh, the uh, modality of thinking of the Armenian elite. There was a pre prevalent and a very sort of a consistent modality of thinking that said, you know, who's going to protect us? Who's going to save us? So if not Russia, then who? If not U.S., then who? This modality of having a savior complex is the number one problem that needs to be ruptured. Second, when you are leaving Russia's, for example, or having left Russia's uh, dependency structure, you have not fallen through the dependency structure of any one country, okay? So for example, are you in the dependency structure of France? You're not, you're engaging the French. You're having conversations with the Dutch. 
you're engaging the Germans, right? You're engaging the Indians. You're buying some stuff from the Chinese. You're getting a lot of things from the United States, not hard power, but, you know, irrelevant things. In this context, when you have a diversity of interests, you don't need to be in a dependency structure because you have alternative options. This is precisely what Azerbaijan did. Most think that Azerbaijan is in Turkey's dependency structure. It is not. Right? When Azerbaijan realized hypothetically that Russia might be developing a dependency structure, it used Israel and Turkey as alternative sources. Very recently, just a few days ago, it is now purchasing weapons from Italy. It is diversifying its access to a security dividends, right? In that context, the more you diversify, the less the need or the probability of, of having or falling into that dependency structure, that trap that you spoke of. So diversification cannot lead to dependency. It is the lack of diversification that enhances and makes it conducive to dependency. Well, as uh, I will keep my promise, uh, that was my last question. Thank you, Nurses, uh, once again for uh, shedding light and sort of opening up the parameters of this conversation. And we look forward to the next security briefing. And I say this every month, we hope that you don't ever have to write another security briefing, but uh, as as time has shown us uh, for the foreseeable future you will be so thank you uh, always a pleasure